This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Women Judges. NAWJ's mission is to promote the judicial role of protecting the rights of individuals under the rule of law through strong, committed, diverse judicial leadership, fairness and equality in the courts, and equal access to justice. To learn more about NAWJ, our programs, and how to participate as a member or support our mission, please visit www.nawj.org. Thank you for listening. Immigration is a hot news topic most days of the week, and immigration court proceedings are often part of the mix. With courts spread out throughout the country and respondents, those are individuals who are in immigration court proceedings, waiting for their day in court, have you wondered how the immigration courts are faring during the pandemic? Now, this is a Voices of the National Association of Women Judges podcast, that's NAWJ, about what's happening in the immigration courts. I'm hosting this podcast in my NAIJ capacity, and the comments made here do not represent positions of the U.S. Department of Justice. Today on this podcast, we'll be looking at women and the immigration courts and how they're faring during a period of unprecedented upheaval. So let's set the stage. There are 69 immigration courts around the country. Our courts in New York have paused non-detained hearings. That's Judge Amina Khan. She's the executive vice president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. The comments that she makes are in her union capacity and they do not represent the position of the Department of Justice. There are immigration judges are continuing to work uh, via telework or continuing to work in a detained facility. Women, primarily immigration judges, have been disparately impacted. Uh, child care, parental care, and home responsibilities often fall on women, whether they are working women or stay-at-home providers. The impact of the current pandemic on women judges in our immigration courts is that they need to continue to work while schools are closed, daycare and home child care has been suspended. I have three sons. Uh, two of my children are at home with me. And I take care of my 90-year-old mother. My youngest son is 14 years old. And during this time period, I've had to oversee remote learning opportunities, as well as work on an educational curriculum for him. You've led communications with the City Health Department and the New York Attorney General to address safety concerns at the court. Do you think the agency's actions have been sufficient to protect the court and the public? We uh, worked in conjunction uh, and reached out to state, city, and local governments to assist us to address our growing concerns uh, regarding uh, the health and safety and well-being of all our court participants. Here's Judge Dana Marks speaking in her capacity as President Emeritus of the National Association of Immigration Judges. The comments that she makes are in her union capacity and they do not represent the position of the Department of Justice. Judge Marks, you have a perspective on this court going back to 1987. I mean, you've served as the president of NAIJ for years, and yet this is clearly a period of unprecedented challenges. You're seated in San Francisco, California, a pioneer state that shut down back in March and saw early pandemic success in terms of containment. Yet the coronavirus positivity rate has soared to 7.4% over the last couple of weeks. 
How are families coping with their own medical challenges and those of their loved ones? Judges who have handled the dockets of detained individuals have routinely been required to go to a courthouse and preside over hearings, sometimes in the same courtroom with respondents, sometimes appearing remotely from their office, but nevertheless having to risk exposure on a commute and uh, elevator ride to a building. Family care concerns persist and are an extremely big issue for those judges and staff who have childcare responsibilities and for the many of us who care for aging parents. When individuals become sick, there is a provision to utilize accrued leave from someone's sick leave. But in our core of immigration judges, there are many new judges who haven't been working long enough to build up any kind of excess leave that they can turn to for that. There are also provisions where someone can access annual leave as opposed to their personal sick leave or access their own sick leave through a program called the Family and Medical Leave Act. But again, those options are limited in their number and there are conditions that apply to those. There have been times where some of the judges who uh, have not been issued laptops and therefore cannot telework, if the conditions at their normal work site are not appropriate for in-person work, those judges are authorized a form of leave called weather and safety leave. Department of Justice has also authorized up to 10 hours of administrative leave for individuals who need to care for children or ill family members, but that program ends at the end of September unless Congress reauthorizes that. In addition, the congressionally passed Family First Coronavirus Response Act, which is called the FFCRA sometimes, requires the federal government to provide paid sick leave. They are allowed expanded family and medical leave, but only for specific reasons that are related to COVID. Those provisions, while helpful, will also sunset uh, December 31st, 2020. These temporary payments only provide two-thirds of one salary rate during that time, which of course is extremely problematic uh, for families to be facing a reduction in pay while at the same time facing additional costs of perhaps having to secure private childcare in order for them to work at home or private tutoring or other support for in-home learning for the children that they uh, have and are unable to send to school. Uh, there are certain circumstances where, if qualified, individuals can be afforded a reasonable accommodation. To summarize, there are leave options. They are a complicated uh, interlocking mix, and we've found that they have not been applied consistently. Despite these options, judges have inadequate options available to them, particularly with judges facing school closures, dwindling leave banks, single parents who are on the bench who may be required to work on site because of the nature of their docket, and with the uncertainty of whether or not 
schools are going to go back in session uh, on site, many of our judges are really struggling. In addition to work-life balance issues, some judges have actually contracted COVID. A July 17th article in the government executive states that across federal agencies and the U.S. military, nearly 1% of all federal personnel have tested positive for the virus. Nearly 19,000 civilian employees have contracted COVID-19, in addition to the more than 20,000 military members who've contracted it. So those numbers are staggering. How are employees protecting themselves at work? Are they provided with adequate PPE? Well, the short answer is, it all depends. Ashley Tabador, president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, speaking in her association capacity. We have had a very mixed result with the agency with regards to providing um, personal protective equipment. In certain courts, we've had adequate masks that have been circulated, but inadequate amount of hand sanitizers or other hygiene materials. We certainly have had very extensive uh, issues with trying to convince the agency to provide uh, PPE such as plexiglass. That issue is still outstanding with the agency. But I think what's more important is to recognize when, when, that when we are talking about PPE, we are not islands unto ourselves, that we have to look at the totality, the whole situation. And in that regard, the agency has been quite um, problematic in its response. This means that the health and safety environment of all is not being equally protected across the board. It's not enough to just talk about masks. It's not enough to just talk about social distancing. It's much more complicated than that. We have had to recreate or reconstitute our health and safety committee in response to this pandemic and to urge the agency to come to the table to engage with us. And so far, they have been, frankly, stonewalling. We've had to raise issues regarding the number of people that they are triggering to come to court based on res resumption of non-detained dockets or the continued operation of the detained dockets throughout this pandemic. We've had to raise issues regarding access to the building where there is still not a, a uniform protocol as to taking temperatures or screening people. Judge Tabador, with these shortcomings falling disproportionately on women, what options for self-care does the government provide? Well, the government provides uh, a basic employee assistant program that has been circulated with uh, employees in situations such as furloughs and now with the pandemic. It is designed to provide some sort of uh, sort of bridging the gap type of measures such as emergency counseling or putting uh, people in touch with other benefits that may be available to judges. So in large part, what has become quite important is for people to recognize that self-care in large part falls on their their own personal shoulders, and that it's important for women in particular to remember that unless you save yourself, you're not going to be able to save others. Here's Judge Dana Marks. Overall, there is a serious lack of available information with sufficient notice to the parties to be prepared and to be aware of whether or not proceedings are going forward. Uh, unfortunately, the agency has not been creative or welcoming of suggestions that it has received in order to try to improve communications. Rather, last-minute Twitter announcements 
or stakeholder listservs that many people were completely unaware even existed prior to the pandemic have been used. And it often simply says a court is closed with no indication. Is that just for a a brief two-day cleaning or is that for a 14-day decontamination that's needed because of a serious and and documented COVID outbreak? Um, People are really left in the dark. I'm aware that the National Association of Immigration Judges has created a health and safety committee. Judge Khan. NAIJ has advocated for and recommended to our agency that the agency focus on better technologies and use of remote hearings to maximize telework opportunities. We've seen many of our sister courts in federal, state, and local systems use this option of remote hearings and technologies uh, to meet their needs. In our next segment, we'll flip the conversation to those that avail themselves of the court proceedings and discuss the challenges women lawyers are facing in meeting their responsibilities to the court, their clients, and their families while schools are closed and safety concerns are paramount. Attorney Maureen Shad is a pro bono counsel at Norton Rose Fulbright and a member of the American Bar Association's Commission on Immigration. Having previously worked in legal services at a youth center, she's been providing pro bono representation to immigrants with a special focus on representing immigrant youth for the past 14 years. She works closely with legal service providers throughout New York State and across the nation. She's speaking to us today in her personal capacity, and her views are her own, not that of her law firm. The way that the immigration court has postponed matters one week at a time has been incredibly difficult as a litigator. An enormous amount of preparation goes into each case. Take an asylum case, which make up the bulk of my individual hearings or trials. They take hours and hours of client prep. And to have to do this without knowing if the case will go forward, but while suspecting that it won't because the court was postponing in these one-week blocks is just very difficult. Um, So I often had no choice but to submit all of the documentary evidence and all the briefing by the 30-day call-up without knowing if it was going to go forward. Um, So that's very difficult for me, especially, and for lawyers, um, but it is most difficult for our clients. So there are many logistical challenges, the difficulty or impossibility of obtaining documents from abroad because home countries were shut down, the realities that many of our clients like us, have these competing childcare demands. The fact that many of them don't have consistent internet access. The fact that my own internet is is strained by three tween girls on their devices all day, which I do precisely to give me the privacy to speak to my clients. And the fact that many of our clients are really, really nervous about leaving home because of their own pre-existing conditions and their higher risk factors. And this is something that um, I think we have to remember that many of our clients are in the communities that have been the hardest hit by the pandemic. So there's even more fear for them. Um, Every client that I've spoken to knows someone who is seriously ill. Um, Most know someone who have died. Many know multiple people who have died. This adds to their stress. When we do our jobs correctly as lawyers, we build a deep and trusting relationship with our clients who have suffered unimaginable trauma. Um, It's a privilege to be trusted with their stories and to try to help them feel heard and seen. And 
but how do you do that? How do you talk to someone about their child's father beating them while that child is sitting right next to them or running around behind them? How do you talk to them about a gang rape? Um, and your kids are also running around in the background. You know, how do you build a relationship of trust while you're both simultaneously parenting? Space is a real issue. I'm in a tiny one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. Um, I can't just send my kids outside. Most of my clients can't just send their kids outside. So I set the kids up with devices and headphones, and usually that works. As I mentioned, three tween girls are generally happy to be on video or chatting with their friends, but suddenly something happens and they're wrestling and they're squealing. And my client, um, it's disruptive to say the least when you're asking someone to share um, such, such intimate details and trying to build that trust. I think the reality is that many women feel that the burden falls disproportionately on them as well. And this is true even in households where women are used to sharing parenting and home duties equally with their partners. Um, and we aren't entirely sure why. Is it because women are more used to asking for accommodations at, at their jobs? Is it because jobs are more used to accommodating women with childcare and therefore many of our male, if we have a male partner, the male partner isn't as used to asking for it. You know, I'm not sure, but it, but it definitely parenting and remote learning and <laughs> trying to keep your kids occupied while trying to do this, um, this work is, has placed an enormous burden on working parents. Some things that have helped are meeting clients at the park where, um, with masks, where their kids can run nearby but not be right within earshot so that they can share some more personal, intimate details. Borrowing my, current, my parents' car. <laughs> like, I'm in my 40s, but yes, I'm still doing that because I'm a city girl. So driving an hour to my client's home in the North Bronx so that they can hand me the photos that they're scared to bring to the post office um, or sign documents um, because of their own risk, they are scared to leave their homes. And one really interesting aspect of this is how many of my lawyer mom friends have said, um, have reflected on the madness of pre-COVID times, sort of the mad rush to to get to daycare by 6 p.m. at the risk of you know a dollar charge a minute, or um, dreading the inevitable subway delays. And now, having worked remotely for so many months, they have said, "I'm, I'm never going back to that." We need to be able to interact with our clients in, in ways that allow our clients to feel safe and trusting. So um, fully remote, it does not work for this this type of work. It also doesn't work to feel the constant, you know, that stress of, of, of running home for 6 p.m., um, which many, many working parents feel because they can't afford further care after that time. And just trying to think creatively about what has worked and what hasn't and, and how we can incorporate that into our lives going forward so that we can do our work you know, more efficiently and, and be able to serve our families, especially if our, if our children are going to be home learning. I think I fear most that the nature of preparation over Zoom is ultimately a disservice to my clients. The stakes for my clients are so high. You know, it can literally be life or death. The chance that I'm unable to serve my clients when I'm working over Zoom or over the phone, the way that I would when I was able to meet with them in person, that feels unacceptable. Ms. Shad, 
I know that you work in the larger community trying to address the needs and concerns of the immigrant population through your work at the American Bar Association Commission on Immigration. Well, as you know, the pandemic has presented unprecedented challenges to legal visitation and access to counsel for those who are detained by ICE, not to mention the very real danger that our detained clients um, and communities are facing while, while in detention with limited access to PPE, et cetera. Um, ProBar in South Texas and IJP, which serves detained immigrants in Southern California, are doing a lot to maintain operations during the pandemic, especially around bond and parole and habeas work. So on the national level, the Commission on Immigration has, in partnership with AILA, been developing the Free Legal Answers platform where low-income individuals will be able to ask immigration-related questions and get answers from pro bono immigration attorneys who can volunteer from the comfort of their home where they have been for many months. Um, so essentially that's a virtual legal clinic for limited scope immigration representation. The COI also recently prepared two handbooks for lawyers serving detained individuals. So helping them to um, looking at the best practices for overcoming access to counsel issues. And we will be hosting a webinar on these handbooks and how to best use them on Wednesday, August 26th. Thank you, Ms. Shad, for your work in this area and for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Laura Lynch is a senior policy counsel with the American Immigration Lawyers Association, also known as AILA. It is a national association of more than 15,000 attorneys and law professors who practice and teach immigration law. It's also the largest national body representing the interests of immigration lawyers. Talking with her is Miss Owings. This is attorney Sarah Owings. She is a principal in the law firm of Owings McNorlin, a boutique immigration law firm in Atlanta. She's also an AILA board member and vice chair of the group's liaison committee with the courts and ICE. I asked them how AILA member attorneys are representing respondents in removal proceedings and how the stakeholder discussions that they've been having with the agency are progressing. Here's an opportunity to hear their response. So throughout this pandemic, uh, suspected COVID-19 infections have forced numerous immigration courts to frequently close without explanation and without adequate communication to the public and to ALA members. Uh, we've had deeply, deeply troubling reports about individuals who have passed away from COVID-19, um, including at least one ALA member following an appearance in immigration court. Since March, AILA has been advocating with the Department of Justice and the Executive Office for Immigration Review to really prioritize the health and safety of EOIR stakeholders and every individual that makes up the ecosystem of an immigration court proceeding. Um, back in March, we joined an unprecedented coalition of partners with the National Association of Immigration Judges Union, um, as well as the union that represents ICE trial attorneys, uh, to call on EOIR and ask them to temporarily pause immigration court proceedings during the initial uh, 
peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we also filed a lawsuit against both EYR and ICE back in April, uh, asking the agencies to adopt flexible remote immigration court measures to protect those um, not only in detention, but also for the attorneys that represent them. Unfortunately, our lawsuit was unsuccessful. Um, however, AILA has continued to engage in administrative advocacy with the agency. Um, back in June, we sent a letter to EOIR um, about their decision to resume non-detained immigration court hearings. Um, AILA opposed that decision and really uh, asked for a sit-down meeting, an engagement with the agency to discuss how we can all prioritize the health and safety of EYR stakeholders and move forward with these hearings in a way that is safe for all individuals involved. So we are continuing to try and engage with the agency, but unfortunately, this is mostly a one-way uh, conversation. So EYR has not um, responded to our request for this sit-down meeting. Uh, AILA recently filed a FOIA request, actually, in order to try to obtain uh, information that hasn't been publicly available about simple immigration court procedures during this pandemic. Uh, we are committed to trying and force the agency to be more transparent, uh, given the very high stakes of practicing in the immigration courts during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I can speak for, I suppose, some of the practitioners. I actually polled some of the moms that I know that go into immigration court about how things have been working um, to sort of focus on the intersection of what's been happening with our communications with the OIR and the experience of private attorneys in the courtroom. Um, one of the main points of concern that people continue to have is, of course, risk of exposure. Um, I spoke with a colleague who... Uh, practices in the detained setting in the Stewart Detention Center, primarily here in Georgia. And um, we discussed her experiences since she's actually gone into the detention center since the outbreak uh, of COVID-19 in the beginning of the pandemic. I myself have not actually gone into a detention center and I wanted to know what that was like. And of course she told me that almost immediately she got a head cold and she went home and her husband uh, is high risk, has various high risk factors. So that was, of course, then terrifying. She was concerned that she had then brought this home to her family, to her three children, to her husband, and then they had to go through the process of trying to isolate on top of already isolating um, throughout this pandemic. Um, I spoke with other practitioners who are dealing with the realities of childcare in the home, how to handle it when you have littles at home, um, you know, with small children. And another colleague told me about how she uh, attempted to get a, an, a, a health, like a childcare worker, someone like a nanny that could come in and assist um, with uh, her infant child, who promptly then gave the entire family the COVID infection. Uh, so there's those sorts of problems where things can just be complicated uh, and compounded by this uh, as we sort of go through our day. Um, and I think you know, Laura highlights our, our attempts to communicate with the agency. I think that some of the prior problems have been magnified by this. In general, I think that as a practitioner, we feel a sense of inconsistency um, in how treatment happens across courts and across the different settings in the United States. I practice in Atlanta. It's very different, um, obviously, from you know, the D.C. area. It's very different from, from other places. And um, 
I think that that bears out in the use of standing orders. That's been confusing for people. They're frequently updated um, and they're frequently changed. While a lot of practitioners have adapted well to the use of standing orders to have telephonics, some courts are now swapping that to the point that you have to file a motion for a telephonic again. And it, it just makes it complicated as far as communicating with the court, what papers you're filing, how you're preparing for your day. Um, it's far easier for us to just, if, you, if you're a high volume practitioner, to have a list of your cases for tomorrow, contact the court, say this is the number I'll be at, and then everything is handled as opposed to papering each individual case with a motion that, that a judge has to has to rule on. It feels like it's um, perhaps unnecessary in those settings and sort of increases the work. Um, again, I think that one of the main things that we see is problems with um, uh, VTC as it's used. In general, uh, I'm, I'm opposed to it. Uh, in general, I think that it allows for um, people to be put in little boxes very far away from the court. It means that we have problems with these remote detention centers, the conditions in them, the fact that distance is not a factor in how people are detained. Um, I think in the court setting means that that practice can proliferate. Um, and I think largely, I'll go ahead and say it, I think is a human rights violation, what's happening in the detention centers. Um, and it, it's something that's actually helpful for right now. You know, I know lots of practitioners, not just of immigration law, but of family law and other areas that are going and having Zoom hearings and they're able to complete things where they can at least see each other. Um, that's not possible for us when we're supposed to call in telephonically for individual hearings. That's not something I've done yet. I've gone into court um, because I can't imagine going and saying, like, did I do enough? Would it be different if the judge had seen me, had seen my client uh, and knew and understood what was going on? And I talk to colleagues who are haunted by that, who say, you know, maybe if I'd had the four children here, so the judge understood who was, was going to be suffering with the absence of this client if he denied this 42B. Maybe if that nun who was going to testify about my client's good moral character had been there in person, things would be different. Um, and doing it on the phone makes you think that perhaps you failed somehow. And since we put our all into our cases, we wanna make sure that we do our very best. Um, having that question of, am I doing enough? Um, it it can, can haunt you. It can really be very difficult for attorneys um, who, who deal with this. Um, on top of all the other things of how we manage things at home and how we're, are we doing enough for our children with remote education, the various policies are going back. And um, you know, fortunately, I'm able to hide right now away from the noise in my house, but that, that is a consistent uh, issue. It's just making sure that we all have space and time to, um, to do our work and then can also be kind to ourselves through this process. Um, finally, I've talked to some practitioners who have opted out, who are no longer actually practicing immigration law, and uh, in part due to the pandemic, uh, in part due to just the fact that it's been really difficult for the past few years and people have um, moved away from the practice. I've talked to many colleagues who, um, you know, want to diversify and it's, it's been in some cases really fortunate because if you work only in non-detained court settings, of course, those clients, just the economics of it don't work right now because people are not hiring attorneys. They're not going to court. Um, so you don't have fees to sustain your practice if that's your only practice area. Um, so it, it's, it's a complicated business how to, you know, put food on the table and make the food and make sure you appear for the court hearings remotely or in person. It, it's a lot of a load to balance for people on our end, I would say. And one thing that I think is really interesting um, that Sarah kind of highlighted is, you know, 
have I done enough? Um, are attorneys having to go in person to feel that they are zealously representing their client? And really, I think this problem is exacerbated by the lack of technology within the immigration courts themselves. Um, whereas in other federal courts around the country, there is some sort of a video technology or a Zoom type technology. Um, in the immigration courts, like Sarah said, you're having your witnesses testify on a phone. Um, you're representing you know, your case and your client um, over the phone in, in most uh, circumstances during this time. And I think that is an additional obstacle um, of, you know, have I zealously represented my client and having that feeling of, of have I done enough? Um, I also know that, uh, you know, EOIR has not yet fully implemented electronic filing, even though it's been a priority for the agency since 2000. Um, so 20 years later, uh, this is still a struggle uh, for this agency to implement um, electronic filing like other federal courts already have in place. Um, so that has been a unique obstacle um, that we've seen during COVID-19 where EOIR has introduced kind of a, a piecemeal fix where they have a temporary email box um, but even with those temporary email boxes that permit some sort of electronic filing, there are limitations to how large the files can be and additional uh, issues in place that can affect your ability to adequately, zealously represent your client. Um, so there are these additional hurdles um, that are technologically related um, that are very problematic during this time. I always find it interesting in our communications when we find out the reasons for things like that, like the fact that some courts have a limit of a 50 or 100 pages on filings. Uh, it's because they then, of course, have to be printed out and placed in a physical file. And it seems like we're at a point where an ROP could be generated digitally, like there's a way to right click and, you know, open a new folder and, and make one and you could put it somewhere without actually having to go through that process. Um, and it's surprising that those sorts of changes have not been adapted throughout the course of this, because I don't think this is going away. We're looking at another year of this, most likely, by the time we have a vaccine with rolling closures and um, and the, yeah, the lack of consistency in how to file and when to file is, is definitely a challenge. Okay. So, yeah, I think that... It's interesting in the in you know the legal field, uh, around 38% of lawyers are women, uh, according to the last study I read last year on these numbers, and um, over 60% of our members of AILA are female. So you have a lot of moms, um, and a lot of people with families that they have to to um, take care of and address uh, their needs through the course of this pandemic, because everyone's still sheltering in place. Um, and I I think that. Some of the things that happen um, can really throw you for a loop. For example, I know a practitioner who is still practicing in the detained setting who was in the middle of a hearing um, when the, like in the middle of direct testimony when the uh, court shut down because there was a COVID case in the facility and had to abandon the hearing essentially without getting a full record of the client's testimony at that point, he's going to have to then pick up later. Obviously, that's extremely disruptive. Um, it's also a concern because of the way that EYR is using HIPAA as a shield to not inform practitioners when there has been a potential exposure. Um, uh, it seems like EYR's take on this is that any sort of contact tracing is therefore a HIPAA violation. Um, and that can be sort of difficult to reconcile with when you do have people who like, you know, like my friend who 
was concerned that she had gone home and exposed her husband because she got sick right around the time she'd been in the facility, um, it, it makes you, you concerned about how we're doing our best to uh, contain the spread and control it in these, in these situations. So I, I would also point out that the dual roles of being a, you know, providing your own childcare and um, being an attorney at the same time working from home, it can be difficult when we are in the transition of back to school, not just because of closed classes that are actually occurring in person, but also the online world, like we are here in Atlanta, it's going to be fully digital for at least the first um, quarter of the, the Atlanta public school system school year. Um, and it can be problematic because when you have children, you can't just sort of set it and forget it and assume that they're going to pay attention to their teacher and do their work online. Uh, you have to make sure they're not just playing video games. So it does involve a lot of intervention during the day um, as they as they move through and, um, and make sure that they're staying on task. Um, so it's definitely another form of you know distraction from the work and um, you know obligation things that you have to do as you're moving Next, we're going to hear from Jill Balakia. Now, she's an assistant chief counsel with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office of the Principal Legal Advisor in Chicago, Illinois. However, she's participating today solely in her personal capacity. So any views expressed are her own and are not that of her employer. Nothing reflected in, in this interview is a professional opinion, nor are any um, of her statements, the official opinion of the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Jill, uh, I mentioned previously that you are based in Chicago, Illinois. How long have you been at that location? So I actually um, have been here for since uh, 2016. I um, have been in my role for longer, but I transferred here um, with my husband back in 2016. And since the pandemic has started, have you been going to court hearings? I have not, actually. I've, um, I have a seven-month-old son, and I was on maternity leave when the pandemic hit. And I've been very lucky to um, have you know, a supportive work environment where I'm able to handle more of the written tasks and not have to juggle um, you know, my, my fussing baby and um, appearing telephonically in a court hearing. So it's definitely been a blessing. Well, you mentioned the this child, which is an incredible, um, good, you know, wonderful thing to have happen in your life, but also extremely challenging at this particular point, from a professional standpoint and also from a health and safety standpoint for your child and for you. How have you been navigating these challenges? You know, I think it was this was really interesting. Um, I think because this, so he's my my first child, my son, and so I kind of stepped into motherhood. I think with you know, this pandemic kind of looming, looming over my head. Um, and also, you know, my husband's um, a physician. And so I think he was definitely affected um, directly in different ways as well. And so, you know, I think our family just has kind of grown um, with this new identity in the pandemic. And, you know, professionally, I think I've been really blessed to have a role where I can still um, do what I love, which is, you know, being a lawyer. Um, and still do it fully um, from home. I think that's you know something not everyone um, is able to achieve, and it's also kind of been a blessing where I'm able to see my son every day, you know, grow up right before my eyes doing this work. Um, but at the same time, I think 
there's a bit of just kind of mom guilt and, you know, attorney guilt, I guess I'll call it, um, in learning to kind of balance that. I think, you know, previously, if I ever had a challenging case coming up or a challenging, um, you know, brief that I wanted to write, I didn't have any children. I could stay at work as late as I needed to kind of knock that out. Um, that was really never an issue. Um, now, you know, I, I have my son and I'm always at home. And so just carving out those times to really hone in on the work and, and focus, um, without feeling guilty that, you know, he's independently playing or, you know, um, that I'm not a hundred percent present, um, in what he's doing. Um, I think that's, you know, been the biggest challenge for me throughout this, but at the same time, I think, um, we're lucky to have, you know, experiences like this podcast or so many other, um, community resources where families that are going through this are kind of, you know, joining together to support each other. So that's also been really great. Have you had a chance to talk with any of your colleagues and uh, can you share a little bit about some of the challenges that they're facing with regard to parenting school-aged children at the same time that they are trying to advance their professional careers? Yes. So I am also um, the um, union representative for my office. And so through that position, I've been able to, you know, glean a little bit about into the challenges that some of my colleagues are facing with this upcoming school year. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's not easy to juggle multiple kids or even one kid. And um, with this kind of e-learning environment, there are tough decisions that families have to make. And I think, you know, you know, the level of education that your child would have been receiving in the classroom. And you want to ensure that your child is still gaining the academic skills that they need in this e-learning online environment, but you also want to succeed professionally and not, you know, make any sacrifices on that end and continue to grow as an attorney. And so I think, you know, just talking through that with some of my colleagues, you know, both mothers and fathers um, in what that looks like for the upcoming year and kind of what they're anticipating their challenges are going to be. I think um, it's been nice to have that open level of discourse and also, you know, recognizing that managers are also having the same, you know, expecting the same challenges. And so I think one nice thing is that everyone can relate to this issue and everyone can kind of work work together with this because, you know, the same kind of accommodations um, an employee is going to need are the same kind of accommodations that a manager is going to try to instill, you know, in their own, um, in their own life. And I think um, just having that kind of, I guess, I, even playing field has um, made this issue a little easier to tackle as well. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Priscilla Orda. Priscilla is a senior attorney at ProBar, focusing on adult and detained issues. All of her views are her own, and do not reflect the views of ProBar or the American Bar Association more generally. Priscilla, can you tell me a little bit about where you're practicing? Yeah, I'm uh, on the border by the sea, as we say here in Brownsville. Um, at ProBar, our office is in Harlingen, and I personally live in Brownsville, Texas, and I've been here about three times. I first came as a teacher in 2005, then I came back as an attorney advisor, and now I'm back as a senior attorney at ProBar. 
And so I really focus, what we focus on at ProBar on the adult team is representing people at El Valle and Port Isabel Detention Center, which is also where the immigration court that we practice in is located. So the court here is a little unique because it's literally connected to the facility. Um, and that matters in our context because Port Isabel has many cases of COVID. Um, and so, of course, when the court is literally physically connected to um, the detention center, that's created a lot of issues uh, during this COVID season. Have you been going to any court hearings during the pandemic? Yes. Um, one of my main focuses this year as senior attorney has been to ensure that we are representing as many people as possible. And so all of our attorneys are going to master calendars, bond hearings, and final hearings. In fact, I had part one of four uh, of a final hearing beginning in June. So I've been doing telephonic hearings since at least June. All of our hearings are telephonic. Um, this was a policy that was put in by ProBar. And frankly, it, it has worked better than we thought it would work, but it is still difficult. Right. I mean, we literally have not seen any of our our clients. My clients don't know what I look like. I don't know what they look like. I find out about them through pictures. So that's what we have been doing. We've been doing everything by phone and mail. Tell me a little more about how you've been finding workarounds for this challenging circumstance. You know, it's really just taking stock of what we can do and focusing on that. I don't have the luxury of saying, I'm not going to help you. And I'll be really frank, we operate a free hotline, right? As, as a VERA funded LOP provider, we do have a hotline and it's free and so they call us. Um, and I, the thing I most admire about my team um, is that we don't ever say, you know, that's enough, we give up. We don't. If somebody calls, we are going to help them. So it's not an option to stop. It's not an option to give up, and it's not an option to forget about people and leave them behind at a detention center. So we took stock and we said, well, what do we have? What we have is an excellent IT system. What we have is a hotline phone number, and what we have is the mail. And that literally is where we've been starting from. We have had to work around everything. For example, I have never worked so hard in my life. Um, I'm easily putting in 12 to 14 hour days, most days of the week. My team is putting in as much as possible. We are absolutely exhausted because instead of taking, oh, a day, for example, to do a pro se asylum application, we now have to mail the application, wait two days, then they have to fill it out, then they have to send it back, then we have to send it back. So suddenly a process that was once feasible to do in a day, maybe two, has become a process that takes a week or two um, at, at the quickest. Um, and, and so that just slows everything down. And now when we talk about absolute, uh, actual representation of people, that has been extremely difficult. I, I don't have words for what it's like to talk to someone on the phone and they pour their heart out to you and you're never gonna see them. You're never going to see their face. And so any news you have to deliver, you have to deliver it in this impersonal way. But we have continued to give services. We have continued to have victories. Um, but really, the workarounds aren't workarounds as much as we're just going to have to work through 
it and push through until until something we don't know what right we don't know if it's a vaccine we don't we don't know what it is but until this is over i don't know that we're working around anything we're pushing through it you talked about working 12 to 14 hours a day tell me how you're navigating professional responsibilities and any family demands that you may have so i would like to start by saying that all parents are mvps period, end of statement, y'all deserve awards, accolades, and a lot of money. I don't have any understanding of how people who have children in particular are, are getting this done personally. Um, and I think this, this is pretty common, you know, relationships are strained. There's some nights that, you know, the house needs to be clean, food needs to be cooked, people need to navigate roles. And I'll be really honest, I personally am doing a terrible job of it. I'm doing an absolutely terrible job of it. And um, so when it comes to balance, I don't think that there is much right now for me personally. And now it's something I preach and it's something that I really focus on with my team. And it's something that the ABA and ProBar are always focused on. But I personally know that I'm not balancing and it's not, it's just not, it's not happening. You know, we're in month six of work from home. And I finally just had to start exercising and um i don't do that i don't enjoy it but on some level like i needed to move i needed to connect i needed to do something again and um i think like for most people it's a work in progress so so when it comes to work-life balance there just hasn't been one there just hasn't been one because for me especially with detained work i've allowed it to become very important under the guise that this is a short-term thing However, now that we're at month six, I even myself am starting to to really think about what does it mean to be working from home and to be working with people who are detained without seeing them under such extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And I don't know what that looks like, um, but any parents, any woman who's doing this, who's who's figured it out, God bless you and please write a blog post because I have no idea how you do it. And I would love to learn. What is worrying you most about practicing during the pandemic? So there's like levels. <laughs> I thought about this question a lot. I mean, on the first level, if I'm being frank, um, for my very first individual hearing into the pandemic on June 19th, you know, I went back and forth with leadership and saying, no, I can go in, I can go in. But I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, I'm 37 years old and I've had people I know die that are just my age. So part of practicing in this time, it's really weird. Um, I don't know if this is how other people feel, but I, I forgot that I'm not 25 anymore. And um, my, my body is like, oh no, you were not 25. Don't even try that. But my mind is like, what's the problem? But if you're being realistic and I'm looking at people who are my age and they are passing from COVID. Of course, death is the first thing. I mean, I've been really concerned about what happens to me, like physically. I'm also terrified for my clients. Almost all of them have had COVID. And, and sometimes they are only getting soap every other week. I mean, you have to understand that the conditions inside the facilities are horrific. Um, so I worry about them. I lost a client this time last year. Two hours after they were deported, they were shot to death. I know what it's like to lose a client 
And I don't know that I'm emotionally, physically prepared to lose a client to a disease that there's absolutely no reason that they had to get. And uh, this is a little bit more esoteric, but my biggest concern about practicing during COVID is due process. I mean, I know it sounds so silly or unimportant in this time maybe, but immigration law at its best, on its best day, has serious due process issues. And I think most att- any attorneys ever practiced in state or federal court will tell you, like, this is not how things are normally done. And it's because we're an administrative court and there are differences, et cetera. But to actually hand down life-changing decisions over the phone, my clients are on screens uh, in front of the judge in a different room. The judge is in another room. The TA is on the phone and I'm on the phone. I just don't understand how that can possibly be considered due process or fair. You don't get a chance to physically be in that room and hear that story. You don't get a chance to see their body language, not in the same way as you do in person. And judges who do do cases in person, because some do, I don't think it's fair to ask a judge to risk their life. It's just not, it's not, that's not fair. That's not due process. It's not right to ask any of us to risk our health and life or those of of people that we love just to be fair, just to be a court, to, to be what we always say we are. So I have had serious concerns, but we have to work through and we have to move forward because as much as I want things to change, they haven't changed yet. So I just kind of keep moving forward. But trust me, it's um, it's kept me up at night thinking about how we got here, how we got here as a country and how I'm going to have to talk to my clients um, if if they lose. And even if they win, there's just no celebration. Yeah, those are the things I've been thinking about these past six months. Here's Ashley Tabador. So if nothing else, unfortunately, the pandemic has once again highlighted what happens when you have a court system that's situated in a law enforcement agency and judges who are controlled by a chief federal prosecutor, which is the situation with our immigration court and our immigration judges. Instead of addressing the court and administering the court, similar to what the courts are doing across the nation, which is to look at the court as a whole, to engage with all the stakeholders, to provide transparency, accountability, and communication, the agency has decided to basically work behind closed doors. And now we have highlighted another good reason why we need to have the court outside of the Justice Department. As my colleague, Judge Marks, has said for years and years, the only lasting solution is an independent immigration court, and the pandemic has been yet another exhibit in that case for it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please visit our website at www.nawj.org or our podcast webpage at www.nawj.podbean.com.